This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. This morning, uh, I see there's quite a few new faces. Who wasn't here this morning? Okay, so we, we've got quite a, quite a few new, newer people here. This morning we did, we did, the first section was an introduction to Ellen White's life, a little bit about Ellen White the person. And then the second session we did was about inspiration, about what it's like to get a vision, uh, about different forms of, of inspiration. I, that's one of my fun ones. I enjoyed the, the morning one very much. This one's also a fun one. I enjoyed this one as well. And for those of you who, who weren't here this morning, this is interactive. So if you're sitting all alone, you're probably going to want to look for a partner. So just move over so that you'll be near someone that you can interact with for the interactive bits uh, over there. Good. And we will begin, well, just a little bit of background. We know that Ellen White's gift, her prophetic gift, actually predates the official organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because before there was a church, Ellen White had already had, well, Ellen Harmon had already had her first vision. So, before there was an Adventist, an official Adventist church, that's a whole lot before. Anybody remember, let's do the quick history lesson. Anyone remember when the Seventh-day Adventist church was formed? Can you give me a date? 1863, we officially organized, and we took a name when? Actually, we, we got a name first. We organized the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and then the church came afterwards. Anyone want to guess why we did that? It's kind of back to front, right? Yes. Right. Right. It wasn't just work, but you spot on, people were scared of organization. Because remember, they'd just come from very, very painful experiences. They'd been thrown out of their churches. So you don't get over that too quickly. I've never been thrown out of my church, but I'm pretty sure it's not a good feeling to be taken before your church board and told to recant or else get out, and you have to get out. Because you believe in the Bible, because you believe in Jesus' second coming. So the early Adventists were very scared of organization. They had that suspicion. But we had a national crisis. We had the Civil War. And we had young men that were called up for military. And they didn't want to fight. And there was a, a clause for conscientious objectors if it was against your religion to fight, you could, you could, you know, enter that. But on the form, you had to say what religion you belonged to. So this was a bit of a problem. 
What do you put when you don't have a religion or an official thing? So this was a real problem because you say, well, it's against my beliefs. Okay, so what church do you belong to? Well, I belong to this church without a name. Yeah, really. You're just a coward. You're too scared. In you go. So they realized we need to have a name to protect our young men, and we need to have a name because right then and there, the printing press was in James White's name. So if anything happened to James White, if he fell over dead, uh, it would go to his children. The church would have nothing to do with it. And James didn't want that responsibility either. He said, as we're growing and getting more and more institutions, etc., it can't be in personal people's names. Uh, because if something happens to these people, what do we do? So it became obvious that we needed to organize. We needed to get a name. Now, since then, we have had lots of books and articles that can argue against Ellen White uh, positively, I mean, argue against plagiarism charges and all sorts of arguments. It's the same recycled arguments you get over and over against Ellen White. So we have, we have good, the White estate has piles of really good stuff. But this is the real problem we're finding right now. It's not that people say, oh, Ellen White's copying stuff, that's why she can't be a prophet, or oh, I have this problem with Ellen White. What the basic problem is, is, so what? She's lost her relevance. What can an old lady who lived about 200 years ago almost uh, have to tell me about 21st century living? Relevance. Relevance. Okay, you got your partner, and we don't want you to fall asleep so early. So... There is your first job. Quickly discuss with your partner what makes Ellen White's writings relevant and what would you, as an individual and the Adventist church in general, lose out on if you never read her writings. Okay, just a few minutes with your partner. If you don't have a partner, join a group. I think there's some strays at the back who don't have partners yet. I'm just covering my, my mic here. We, we're discussing that question with a partner or with a group. So just join on with anybody and that's what we're discussing.
Okay, some groups have a lot to say, others maybe have already lost the relevance there, huh? Not too much. I'll give you another half a minute. That's true. Okay, let's hear it. What, what makes her writings relevant? Anyone? They're God-inspired. If God has taken the trouble to try to communicate with us, it should be relevant. Good, good point. Okay, what would I be missing out on if I never read anything of Ellen White? Yes. Oh, I like that. A better understanding of the future. Good. What else? Yes. Good. Absolutely. You don't forget that after the Millerite movement, after William Miller and after the Great Disappointment, there were about 60 different groups that evolved at the same time that our church evolved or began, if I can call it that. They were splintered. Lots of different people, some to try and make sense of the great disappointment. Some said, okay, well, maybe Jesus has already come, and we just missed out on it. Maybe it was a spiritual coming. They formed the group. Uh, there were many, many, many different groups that formed. But out of all of those groups, the only ones still around today, there's actually two, really, and we are by far the biggest and by far the only one. The others just fizzled away. They all had bits of the message, but nothing combined. And we have Ellen White to thank largely the way God inspired and kept us on track through the, the different maze of things. Definitely. Okay, this afternoon, I would like to highlight there are many, many, many benefits that I, you personally can get from reading, from studying Ellen White's writings. So these are what I'd like to highlight eight or so of them. You ready? Okay. If you didn't read Ellen White's writings, you would miss out on a fantastic, comprehensive biblical worldview. You know, I'm, I'm often surprised when, when I'm talking with people of other faiths. Um, it's nothing new. The great controversy that begins before Genesis and that ends in Revelation, it's nothing new. It's all there. 
But in her writings, in Ellen White's writings, she spells it out so clearly that you just can't miss it. And when I speak to other people and, and I talk and I tell the story, they're like, wow, yeah, that's true. The Bible does say that. And I'm like, how did you miss that? Then I realized that I had this great advantage. I have a framework for making sense out of all the random chaos that's going on right now. Isn't that nice? While other people are freaking out about elections, about people riding trucks into crowds of people and blowing things up and killing people and saying, why? What's going on? This place is out of control. My life's out of control. It feels I'm all insecure. The political situation is just a disaster. Everything's a disaster. And I'm going like, no, it's, things are working out. There is a framework. I can't tell you all the details, but there is a framework that I can refer to that keeps me from panicking. I can make sense out of the chaos that's going on in our world. I have a framework for the entire Bible. Every single book of the Bible I know is within the great controversy theme. It's all, every book, every perspective is about good, God, winning, evil, the devil. And the details of that plan, the life of Christ, prophecy, foretelling how that will end, it's all there in that framework. Now, this isn't just a theory. Thank you. This isn't just a theory. This isn't just a nice philosophical thing. This framework is very practical. It's very hands-on. And this informs all sorts of things. It informs what I study why I choose my career. It informs who I look for as a life partner. The great controversy theme permeates absolutely everything I do, even down to what I eat, what I drink, how much I sleep. It influences everything. How I dress. It influences absolutely every aspect of my life. It is a complete package deal. And this is a big package. It's not a straight jacket. It's not a straight jacket. This is big enough for me to understand who God is, how much he loves me, and how, he, how involved he wants to be in my life, in my present, and in my future. This is a big framework. I'm missing out on this big picture if I never read anything of Ellen White's. Okay, that was number one. Provide a comprehensive biblical worldview. That's what we get. What else do we get? Ah, you can't do much Ellen White reading without discovering that she was passionate about Jesus coming. Jesus coming. This was something she kept looking forward to. This is something that she gave up so much for right in the beginning, and this is what made our first pioneers so excited. This idea that Jesus was coming soon is what really lit up their life. 
When did Peter, the Apostle Peter, when did he think Jesus was coming? During his time. When did Paul think that Jesus was coming? When did Paul think Jesus was coming? And he said, it's already here. It's starting already. Remember? Yeah, he says, after the man of sin has been... And you know, by the way, he started already. Paul believed strongly that Jesus was coming in his time as well. Peter, Paul, all of the apostles looked forward to Jesus coming. And it's really that that motivated them to spread Christianity to all of the known world. That was the fire. If you look back over history, you will find every great reformation is fueled by an understanding that Jesus is coming soon. Martin Luther was convinced that Jesus was coming in his time. That's what gave him the fire necessary to stand up against the system. Have we lost our fire? If we read Ellen White's writings, we're going to get that fire back again. And you go, okay, well, I don't know. I don't really want to be disappointed. Um, maybe Jesus doesn't come in my lifetime. What would you say? Okay, let's talk about soon. How soon is soon? Turn to your partner. How soon is Jesus coming? There we go. Tell your, no, don't say very soon. That's a cheat. All right. Try, honestly, say to your partner, do you think, do you think you're going to finish studying? Do you think you're going to get married? Uh, do you think you're going to have a job? Do you think it's 10 years? Do you think it's five years? Do you think it's 50 years, maybe? Okay, yeah, let's hear. When is Jesus coming? When do you think? Soon. All right. Does anybody want to put numbers on there? Why are you scared to put numbers on? You don't want to be disappointed. Good point. Yes, there was a hand back there. He's got the cap on, okay? Okay. That depends on what you read. Depends on what you read. Uh, if you read in several, you know, not Christian publications, if you look at the science world, they are all giving dire warnings of global catastrophe, and it ranges from within the next 20 years to the next 50 years. Running out of fresh water, the melting of the ice caps, 
uh, extinction of all species of animals, 70% of the animal species and what that will do to the way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, there's plenty of people out there that are also saying things can't go on as normal for another couple of hundred years, that we are looking in at a breaking point in history. But you are very right to be scared to put a number on it. I think the best would be to do it like William Miller did. After the great disappointment, he was asked, when is Jesus coming? And he said, I'm going to expect Jesus' coming today and tomorrow, today, and the day after, today. He's going to be ready today, today, today. And if we really lived that fire, if we were really serious that Jesus could be coming very, very soon, it would put things into perspective. It would put a lot of the big problems that we face into perspective and make things easier. We'll speak a little bit more about that in a moment. Her writings provide the orientation for her life and her work. For her, it was all about Jesus coming. Jesus coming, getting her life ready, getting a, the people's life, the Adventist church, getting ready to meet Jesus and getting the world to meet Jesus. That was what her life was all about. Everything else had to fit in with that. Those were the big term goals. And, well, let me tell a little story. When I was in college, we had a week of, a week of prayer speaker. And he was a very impressive young, young man with a guitar. Uh, he did a lot of music and preached. And I really remember this because he, you know, he was one of those preachers that preached with a newspaper and, and a Bible. Um, you know, he looked at all the current headlines back then and he showed us and he did things and he said, people, I think Jesus is coming within two years. Okay, it's a little while ago. He said, I think, you know, I don't think things are going to go on much longer than two, three years tops. And... Um, I thought about this, I listened to it, and I don't know, I got scared, which is probably not the, not the emotion he wanted to awaken in us, but I got scared, and that day I went down, we, we, we didn't have cell phones, so it was the pay phones, so I went down to the phone, grabbed the phone, called my dad. Now, my dad's a very wise man, and I'm really grateful to, to, to have him in my life. And I said, Dad, I think I'm going to quit college and I, I'm going to go out and tell people that Jesus is coming. And uh, because, I mean, if Jesus is coming in two years' time, why on earth am I at college? Uh, I should be doing something more useful with my time than studying stuff. And um, my dad listened. He let me talk it all out. As I say, he's a very wise man. He let me talk it all out. And then he said to me, uh, you know what Martin Luther wrote? He said that if Jesus was coming tomorrow, I'd plant an apple tree today. If Jesus were coming tomorrow, I'd plant an apple tree today. And I went, huh? And he said, where you are right now, you don't have tomorrow. You don't have the day after where you are right now is where God wants you to be. 
And that should be where you are working for Jesus. Not sometime in the future, not out on the streets, not here, there, crazy, running around. Listen to how the Holy Spirit directs. Watch for the openings in your life, providentially, and let God lead you. Be where he wants you to be now. Live in the now. Plan for the future. Plan as if you're going to get old and retire. But live as if Jesus is coming tomorrow. This is something that Ellen demonstrated in her life so, so well. On a very practical level. Very practical level. She shows us how we can balance the act between living now and living for eternity, that in-between time. Okay. When you read Ellen White's writings, you realize that she gives lots of hands-on case studies of how to live a practical Christian life. She upholds the Bible as setting up principles that are applicable across time and space. Those principles, she takes them from the Bible and she applies them to contemporary living for her time and shows us how that can work in real time, which is pretty impressive. She took and applied those challenges to the 19th century life, which, as I said this morning, that's a whole lot closer. That's a whole lot closer than where the New Testament ends. Yeah. We spoke, said this morning, Jesus takes the principle of love your neighbor as yourself, which is in the Old Testament. It takes that principle. Jesus amplifies that by saying, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Anyone in need is your neighbor. So Jesus amplifies that principle, explains it in the context to his audience. Ellen White takes those principles as well and says, well, how do I show practical love for my neighbor in a 19th century context? What does it look like? What, was it, what does that principle look like when I actually put it into my life? Okay, here's something to do. We don't want you to fall asleep. So keep you awake. What biblical principle do you think she had in mind with the following statement? You ready? Okay, in your group. There we go. You need to find a group. Huh? <laughs> I have some trouble because it's recording.
nice to meet you, Brian. Chantel. Would you? Would, yeah. When I talk, my hands always get cold. <laughs> would you like to join with that group, or are you good there? Do you want to join up? Sounds good. Let's hear what they say. Huh? Okay, I'll ask just the ladies. Only the ladies first. How many of you? I'll, I'll give you. A, I'll give you the chance. But how many of you know how to horn, harness a horse? Good. We've got three, four people that can harness a horse. Well done. How many of you guys know how to harness a horse? All right, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, so we're in bad need here on both sides. Okay. So, yes, what do you think she meant? Okay, so she says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And she thinks that's, that's, the, that's a very interesting application. You'll have to come to the hermeneutics one where we do the application thing. Okay, that was a good one. Yes, at the back. Okay. All right, I like that. But what biblical principle is that based on? Proverbs 31, all right, we have the virtuous woman that can do all the stuff. That's good. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you, thank you. If we look in the New Testament, Paul says repeatedly that we need to not be dependent, that we need to be self-sufficient. He says quite, especially financially, that we have something to share, that we're not a liability to those around us. He says that quite, quite often. And I think she is pulling one of, it's one application, there are many, but this application of being independent, being able to share and having something to share. Now, you might say that's strange. Think back to her context, and it happened fairly often, where there would be a medical emergency at home, and the men are all gone. They're all out on the fields, they're away. The woman at home would have to send someone to run, one of the children, to one of the neighbors to get a guy to come over to harness up the horse, uh, get things ready, to get the injured person on to take them to medical help because a woman couldn't do that kind of thing. So she'd have to wait. If there was any emergency, she was helpless. 
She was helpless until help could arrive. Ellen says, no, no. This is something that a woman should know. You should know it for yourself, and you should know it that you have something to share in a medical or in an emergency, that you could harness that horse and you could get out there yourself to render help. So maybe just a little, link, a little link, we'll talk a little bit more in the other seminar later on, a little bit more hands-on with looking for those principles. But she takes biblical principles and applies them to her context back there. Ah, I really like this one. She shows us how we can become involved in contemporary issues. Okay. I'll make a, a uh, confession here. Does anyone that wasn't here this morning, I'm asking, don't answer if you were here this morning, but anyone else want to guess where I come from? Hi, welcome. Germany. Okay, wrong guess. Okay, who said South Africa? Oh, and, and did you know? Or you guessed? My accent was good enough. Okay, that's right. I, I'm, I was born in South Africa and I grew up in South Africa at the height of apartheid. Uh, for those of you who don't remember anything about apartheid, uh, apartheid is a political system that permeated every aspect of society in which all the racial groups were segregated, completely segregated. It was against the law to mix with anyone of another race. Uh, and everyone had their own places to live, their own hospitals to go to. Even the beach was split up into different portions. And you couldn't go to a beach that didn't correspond to you. Naturally, the white people got all the best beaches and all the best hospitals and all the best living conditions. And the other racial groups had to, you know, make do with what came down after that. And this was the political system. The church in South Africa... The Seventh-day Adventist church was also split amongst these racial groups. We never, in white churches, we never associated with any the other groups, the Indian, the colored, or the black churches. No, no integration, no circulation. And we said, well, we don't want to become involved in politics. Therefore, we do it this way. We just do what the law of the land says. And it was often like, okay, for us it was easy, it was advantageous to live like that um, and just try and shut out politics. But we couldn't completely shut out politics because we were living out the political objectives of the ruling party. So when, um, when Nelson Mandela was voted in as the first democratically, properly democratically elected president in, in 95, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church really came under fire. Everybody turned around and said, and where were you through all these years? What were you doing? You say we all created equal, that God loves us all, etc., etc. Where were you? Why didn't you have anything to say? And it was distinctly awkward. And it has influenced our ability to witness in a tremendous way because we were so divorced from contemporary society. And I never really realized how involved in 
contemporary society Ellen White was in her day. It's pretty impressive. It's scary. <laughs> if you come from a background like mine, it's like, whoa, how did she become so involved in this? She was a very strong supporter of the temperance movement. She was also very, very vocal about abolition, um, slavery. I mean, she spoke out. It was a hot-button issue. Also in the North, she didn't mince her words. She came out loud and clear against slavery at a time when most people in our church were still like trying to be tactful about this very controversial topic. For her, it was like just black and white. That was just, no, this is wrong. There's no two ways about it. She was also very strong in her denunciations of alcohol. Um, so much so that when, you remember, it was being voted whether states or even the country went dry, where selling of any alcoholic beverage was illegal. And she said, she even went this far, she said, if they're voting in your area about alcohol, go on Sabbath to vote. Miss church if you need to, go and vote. And I went, whoa! She, she was really, really involved. Huh. Now how on earth did that work? She was very, very vocal. Then something strange I saw. She worked very strongly with, it was really women that powered this, uh, most of these social reform movements were powered by women in the 18th century, in early, you know, late 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. It was woman power, really. But women still didn't have the vote. They didn't have the vote, they couldn't vote, they would form these societies and they would go outside uh, the local saloon and they would hand out pamphlets to all the poor guys that tried to get into the saloon about how evil alcohol was and they would sing hymns while the guys were trying to drink inside and hold prayer meetings in front um, and kind of boycott that way. But they didn't officially have a vote. So eventually, these things were passed, and women realized, wow, we could, we've done such a lot without the vote. Imagine what we could do with the vote. Um, we need to start working for women's suffrage. So they started coming together. Many of these leaders, quite a few of these leaders, had been involved in this movement, and they approached Ellen White because she was very radical. She was a woman, and she was preaching, a big taboo. Uh, she was a woman, and she was so involved in these issues. So they came to her, and they thought, we are going to find a natural ally in Ellen um, to help us crusade for women's suffrage. Funny thing, Ellen wasn't in the least bit interested. Not in the least bit interested. She said, that's very nice, but no thank you. And people couldn't understand. They said, now, wait a minute. Um, do you think women don't have the brains? Because that was one argument that was made at that time, that women just don't have the mental capacity to make proper political decisions. Uh, do you think this is the case? And Ellen was, no. Um, well, then, then, then why aren't you joining us on this? Why do you think Ellen White was not interested in helping with the women's suffrage movement? Yes. 
Okay, wasn't her main goal? God was directing to do something else? Good, yes? Okay, good, thank you. Yes. Okay, you're making a link between labor unions, and Ellen White was very wary of the power of labor unions. Okay, good. Good. It didn't glorify God? Okay. If you pull any of these things to, the, to a, a sort of a natural conclusion, you could say, yes, but it does, you know, God created men, he created women, uh, women can be a positive influence on society, etc., etc. Ellen put everything into the context of the great controversy. What I, as I study her, I realized she knew how to use causes without letting causes use her. That's how she knew. She used the cause to further the kingdom. And at any part where the cause started taking a different train, Ellen said, thank you, that'll do, I'm out of it. This was her reasoning. She said, women are as evil as men are. They have fallen nature just like men do. What am I profiting by putting time, effort, money, Everything else behind getting the vote for women. Will it make this world a better place? One of the arguments that was strongly being made at this time was, if you give women the vote, there'll never be another war. Because what woman will send her son off to be killed? A mother can't do that, right? That's logic. So give women the vote and we'll have world peace. <laughs> women got the vote and what happened? World War I. <laughs> and right after that, okay. Now, Ellen knew, Ellen knew that that is nonsense because women are as evil as men. An unredeemed woman is just the same as an unredeemed man. I'm not spending my time and my influence trying to push something through that is not going to have a direct influence on the kingdom. Alcohol, yes. Because you cannot get a person who's drunk to make a commitment for Jesus. You need someone that's in their right mind. You need to, it will make the world a better place if the fathers are not beating their wives and their children. If they're sober enough to be able to hear and understand. For the slave, does the slave have any right? Can he choose Jesus for himself? Can he or she actually live a life that God wants them to live as a slave? No. They need to be free so that they can choose God and they can choose eternity. Very interesting. And I think to myself, what's out there now? Veganism is a big thing. It's a big thing. How far should we go? to connect with organizations, connect with entities that are promoting healthy living, that are promoting exercise, etc. How far can we go before it becomes a different agenda? 
But this gives a lot of thought. There are lots of opportunities where we could become much more involved in our societies, but we need to keep the focus and never let the agenda run us over here. Ellen White gives us great principles for improving our quality of life. Okay, we don't have to go very far. Let me just before, um, what time does this seminar end? Anybody? 3.45. All right, we need to, in 11 minutes. So, here we go. We have a comprehensive concept of health laid out in her writings. This is unique. If you look back in our history, we have all of the health message is not unique. There were people in her time that promoting promoting vegetarianism. There were people promoting using water as a treatment. There were groups promoting exercise. But what is so unique is the combination, how she knew what to take and what to leave. I mean, some of the same groups that were promoting vegetarianism said you should never have any salt in your diet because salt is a mineral and it's a poison, so it should never go into your diet. And Ellen said, too much salt is bad, but we need some salt. And they said, how does this work? She says, I don't know. But that's what I've been told. A little bit of salt, essential. Too much salt, bad. So I continue using a little bit of salt in my diet, she said. She knew what to take there. The health reform for her was always connected to mission. It was never an end in itself. And I think that's an important concept to remember. Uh, and lifestyle change, this was something new. They were also back then looking for that magical pill that will solve cholesterol, that will fight this, that will fight that. But this idea of changing your lifestyle as being the best remedy for overall health. Have relationships become easier or more complex since Ellen White's day? It's complex. It's complex. Finding the right person, that life partner, has never been quite as difficult, I don't think. It's become more and more complex. But she provides hands-on hands-on counsel to people giving practical advice. It's funny how inundated she was with once her prophetic ministry was established with people that wrote letters, should I marry Tom or Dick? And um, should I marry Mary or Anne? And under very few circumstances did Ellen ever say, I think you should or you shouldn't marry Ellen. She would say, go back, look at the biblical principles. Here's a couple of them that I want to highlight. Now, see if this person you're interested in is showing these characteristics. P.S. Are you showing those characteristics? Okay. So she encouraged readers to prayerfully apply the principles involved in relationships. Her writings, we spoke a little bit about it already, give guidance for the church as a whole. The Seventh-day Adventist church would not be where it is. It wouldn't exist. We would have dissolved long ago if it hadn't been for her pointed and directed 
um, uh, writings, particularly the three principal ministries of publishing, health, and education are a direct result of prophetic guidance. Ellen White's writings, I really like it, especially while we were all fighting about women's ordination um, and all the other things that we've been fighting about in church. I like reading her, uh, her writings, not because I see black and white answers out there, but because I realize that the church has been through worse, and God brings us through. God brings us through. God brings us through from attacks from the outside and from the inside. We don't have to abandon ship over here. Her writings, when they're taken as case studies, particularly, you think of the Kellogg's crisis, we haven't faced anything as big as that in our history. More people, John Harvey Kellogg, he was employing more people than what the General Conference did at the time when he broke away. Okay? He was employing more people. He took with him over half the property. Imagine that. Half our churches going. More employees than, than the official church organizers. He took it all. It was a big, big crisis. Within 10 years, he and his breakaway were no more, and the church was stronger than ever. There's plenty to learn. And here, last point under this. She reminds us that the spirit in which we approach potential conflict is as important as the thing you're fighting about. Now, I know this might... What's the time? Okay, we still got two minutes. For which? For, for which? Ah, yes, there are several. I can give you several on that. Um, you, we think of the big fights. Believe me, there were lots of big fights. You know what one of the big fights was in early Adventism about the 1900s? I mean, it was a major fight. Now, don't laugh, okay? It was serious stuff. Whether or not men should shave. It was a big fight all over the review and the best theologians were presenting biblical argumentation for and against shaving. And it got so big that people were accusing other people, if you shaved, you were marring the image of God. You were defacing the image of God by shaving. Okay? They were whipping out biblical arguments left, right, and center and calling each other names and accusing each other of falling away from the truth because they were shaving. This was big. It was World War II for, for our church over here. And Ellen says, and she makes it clear, she says, now wait, 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 wait. She doesn't take, they keep trying to pull her into the fight. Like, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? She says, I've got no vision from the Lord on this. I've got no information from the Lord on this. But one thing I can tell you, the way you at each other here is wrong. Yes, but who's right? He's wrong. He's right. I'm wrong. I, well, I don't know who's right and wrong, but you are both wrong because you're going at each other like this. The spirit at which we fight in church may be more important than the issue we're fighting over, although we may not recognize it at, as that at the time because Adventists never just fight because they feel like fighting. They always fight because they're fighting for truth and for doctrine.
and for purity. So, we may not quite see it until afterwards, but it's so important that we have God's Spirit while we fight. And if I can use the word fight, while we disagree, while we try to figure out what the truth is in a given situation. Over here. When Kellogg's um, cornflakes, when they, they had their cornflakes series and um, it had been around for a while and they wanted to start a new advertising campaign for their cornflakes. So they came up with a really good slogan. The slogan for Kellogg's cornflakes was, taste it again for the first time. Taste it again for the first time. And that's how I'd like to end. If you are an Ellen White reader, taste it again. And if you're not, then taste it again for the first time. Look at what all you are getting. Look at what you are getting. What God wants to bless you with. Thank you. Our next seminar, we will begin with the hermeneutics of Ellen White, how to interpret her difficult statements. And if you are in perplexity and you want to be in this one, but you also want to see something else, tomorrow's one is another practice session of the same thing with different examples. So it gives you some flexibility there if you want to be in both. If you want to be in both, cool. If you don't, one or the other, you'll get the same thing. Okay. Thank you. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.